going to let the uh, children be dismissed at this time to uh, go to junior church. And as they go, I'd like us to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, a topic that should be equally stunning to us. The love that God shows to us and the love that God expects from us. I think that as we look at the uh, command of God to love one another, it should be a command that humbles us. Because selfless, self-sacrificing love is not naturally occurring. There's a song that came to my mind this week, the uh, old song, Love is a Many Splendid Thing, which is attempting to help us to understand how beautiful and glorious love is. But at the same time, I think you could say love is an, an incredibly fickle thing in terms of how we understand it from a human perspective. It is uh, on and off. It's hot and cold. Uh, we know this in our relationship with God and our love for God. We know what it is to have a a zeal for God that is burning, a love that would cause us to sacrifice anything for Him. And we know what it is in the next week to fall flat on our face in a situation where we might lose a little bit of reputation for being a believer. And we wrestle with stepping out there and being the man or woman of God. We know that kind of wrestling. So love is splendid. And as it is described in Scripture, it is glorious. But it's also a little bit fickle. We struggle with being consistent in our love. Last Sunday morning, we ended by saying that the secret of loving is being loved. And as we begin today, I just want to reiterate this thought. The secret to practicing love is knowing that you've been loved. One of the great motivations to sacrifice is having people sacrifice for you. And if you remember how much God loves you, it will help you to love like he loves he, he loves some really difficult, inconsistent, awkward people in a tremendous way. And if you doubt that, just look beside you, okay? Look around. Look at the people that God draws to himself and loves. Not many mighty, First Corinthians says, not many noble, not people of high reputation, of high morality. He, he chooses to magnify his love by loving the unlovely. That's who God is. It's the kind of love that he calls us to practice. There's a broad array of definitions in the Bible for love. And I, I just give you these three so that you have an understanding of the context that we come to when we're trying to get to what the love of 1 Corinthians is talking about. There is in Scripture a love that is physical in its expression. Well, sometimes we'll use the word, it's an erotic love. In the context of marriage, a beautiful thing that honors and glorifies God. It's a gift from him that he wants us to enjoy. But that kind of love will not sustain sacrificial relationships. It won't hold things together. It's not enough. It is a love that is reciprocal in nature. And that's not the essence of biblical love. It tends to lean on romance and passion. There's another kind of love that is present in Scripture, which is a love that is between individuals. It's a reciprocating brotherly love. It's a love that's shared. It's what we, we call them friends. Okay, people that we get together with, that we gain something by being with them, and they gain something by being with us, and there's this give and take in the relationship. That is also, biblically, a very beautiful thing, and it is a kind of love that is commanded of us, an affectionate, 
brotherly, friendship-based love. But the love that is being spoken about when you come to 1 Corinthians 13 pulls you into a different category. It's a love that is a demanding love. It is a self-sacrificing love. And most of you know the word that's used for it in the New Testament. It's the word agape. It is a, a love that is defined by active sacrifice. It is best understood when you look at the cross of Christ. When he chooses to give himself to be a ransom for many. To bear the price and consequence of my sin so that I do not have to bear it. I, I don't give anything back that's tantamount to that. I don't make any contribution that in any way looks like that. This is the kind of love that God is calling us to this morning. I'll give you this definition. I have this in the notes. It is a choice to obey God. A choice to obey God. I think I want to key on this word. It is a choice to obey by sacrificially seeking what is best for others. Okay, it is a love. It is a choice to obey God by sacrificially seeking what is best for others. And it is, in that sense, unconditional. It's not a love that is present if. It's not a love that is present when. Okay, it is a choice to obey God by sacrificially giving ourselves to meet the needs, to be a benefit to others. It is a love that is based on choice. When you go to a wedding, they do something interesting at the beginning of the ceremony. Once the bride and groom are up front, they do this thing called the questions of intent. Do you intend to da-da-da-da-da? And the bride and groom predictably say, oh yeah, I will. I do. And then we go through things called vows. You promise to love this person in sickness and in health, rich or poor. We, we, we make, in the context of wedding vows, amazing statements. And at the end we say, yes. Okay. Anyone that's been married a while knows that the person up there getting married, okay, they don't know what they just said. Okay, what they, I, I was dealing with some, a couple in premarital counseling recently. They said, what you really should say at that point is, and I mean this in sincerity, not in a belittling way. What we should be saying is, so help me God. Why? Because no one on their wedding day is prepared for what it will take to have a relationship that ultimately will bring deep joy in your life. But on that day, you're not simply mouthing words. You're making a promise. You're making a choice. You just said you would stay with them no matter what. And that's the kind of love that Jesus Christ has demonstrated to us. In the wedding vows, there are no conditions. None. The kind of love that God offers to us when we become His children is an unconditional, irrevocable love. That should be stunning and amazing to us. Because that's this idea of agape love, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is how we know what love is. Jesus chose to lay down his life for us. He chose a self-effacing, self-sacrificing path for our benefit. And we bring nothing back in response of worth and value. We're just sinners in need of grace. And yet he shows that this kind of love. Now let me say this. If you ask me the question, does agape love carry it with it 
notions of romance and positive feelings? My answer is absolutely yes. I believe that Jesus feels strongly about us. But I know that he feels strongly because of what he chose to do. I don't know that Jesus loves me because he told me that he does. I know that Jesus loves me because he showed me that he loves me. So that when we start to unpack this idea of, of what is this biblical definition of this God-like love, we want to say that feelings and, 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 and this kind of romance with God, this love with God is part, certainly, of what it's about. But we need to realize that if we're going to practice this kind of love in the context of our relationships, we need to realize that the feelings of this love are maintained by the choices that we make on a regular basis to be self-sacrificing and self-effacing in our relationship with others. Because that's how God loves us. This love that we're talking about, we looked at last week in verses 1 to 3. And we found that this kind of self-sacrificing, self-effacing love is indispensable in the context of church community. It is essential as the context. It is the necessary context in which we can exercise our God-given gifts for the benefit of others. Because the assumption of the context is, I come with the desire to be self-effacing and self-sacrificing so that I can be a help to my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the presupposition out of which we say, okay, God, these are the gifts you've given me. I want to go and use the gifts that you've given me to be a benefit or to be a blessing to others. But I realize, as Paul says, without love, what am I? I'm a squeaky door. I am nothing. It profits me nothing. If the actions of my life are not accompanied by a self-sacrificing desire to benefit others in the name of Christ, then Paul says it all comes to naught. So it is the essential context in which love is expressed. Now, because we struggle with grasping concepts like this, self-sacrifice, self-effacing love, we say, okay, all right, now I'm going to go do that. You know what I need? I need concrete illustrations and examples of that. Well, see, this is what happens in the context of marriage, isn't it? On the wedding day, the emotions run high. The romance can carry you a pretty good distance. At the men's retreat yesterday, there was a wedding on the grounds. About 200 people there, young bride, young groom. I assumed that I looked that age when I got married, that I looked that young. Looking at them, they're kids. They're kids. They're saying things they don't understand. Somebody needs to go tell them, help them. Because they don't know what they're saying. There's a beautiful sense of romance and love. And, 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 and then over time what happens in the context of the marriage, that love begins to mature. I begin to understand. Love means letting my wife, without any annoying or belittling comments, let her wash the lettuce that came in the pre-washed bag. Without saying anything. You know why? Because that's what she likes to do. Now, I'm self-centered enough and arrogant enough that I think she shouldn't do that. Okay, I'm stupid enough to speak up and make that known to her. Well, that helps a lot in the relationship, too. Okay? When you get in specific context, you say, oh, that's what I promised. 
when she isn't everything that I want her to be. That's his love for her. And believe me, I don't have any room for complaint. But in my flesh, I can still wrestle with these stupid, insignificant tendencies. I can struggle with loving a woman who everyone that knows her would think, how could you not? And yet in our flesh, what happens? We wrestle. We wrestle. Because the greatest enemy to sacrificial love is selfishness. And it resides in every one of our hearts here this morning. Only a fool would say, oh, right, selfishness? I don't wrestle with that. No, you know, the truth is that we all do. This bit of what Paul calls remaining sin in the new man, in the new woman, in the new young person who's been converted by the grace of God. This little bit of residing selfishness that wants to rise up and take control and assert its influence and get what it wants out of life. Paul says, this love that I am describing is indispensable. It is then described in verses 4 through 6. And I'm just going to deal with the first three this morning. So don't, don't look at that long list and panic, okay? I'm just going to touch base on three of these characteristics of love that help to give us specific context or illustrations of what it means to love in the way that Paul is saying we should love under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And what he says is love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. Okay, those are three pictures. Now, what you will notice as you move through verses 4 down through verse 6, or verse 7, is that love is taking on human characteristics. Okay, love is being personified. Love doesn't do this, love does that. It Love is actually taking on personal characteristics. And it's showing us that when Tim Hoff is acting in love, he's going to be like this, or he's not going to do this. Does that make sense? Love is personified. It actually becomes a person. Here's what's fascinating. If you read that passage of Scripture, and in the place of love you put the name of Christ, guess what you end up with? The greatest challenge you ever face in your life. Be like Him. Be like Him. Observe, study the life of Christ in these terms. And go and be like him. Right, that's the call to love that issues forth in this text. So every descriptive in these verses, they, some of them will appear like they are adjectives, but none of them are. They're all verbs in the original language. Okay, love doesn't do this. Love does do this. Every one of them is a verb. Some translations, they tend to come off or seem like they're adjectives, but they're not. Okay, every one of them is a verbal expression in the original language. Why is that? Because of what 1 John 3.18 says. Let us not love in word, but in deed and in truth. You see, it's easy on the wedding day to say, yes, oh yeah, yes. And then in the context of life, it's hard to be the person that we promise to be. Okay, but love is always expressed in actions and attitudes towards another individual in the context or sphere of our influence. So this morning, let's just look at these three words that help us to get an understanding of what love is. And as we look at this, here's the question I have to ask. Will you choose to love truly this morning? Will you choose to love in these just three simple ways? Well, let's say, God, confront me this morning. Show me where I am loving and show me where I am less loving than I should be or show me where I am not loving at all in, in, in the context of my relationships. 
show me, and then change me. And then change me. The first statement that emerges here is this. Love is patient. Love is patient. Patience is a a restrained response to the actions of others. Okay, a restrained response to the actions of others. It means to be long-suffering and long-tempered in the context of a wrong received or when I am taken advantage of or when I am inconvenienced to not react. It endures injury and wrong without retaliating. And here's to me what's powerful about this word. Okay, it endures injury, wrong, and inconvenience without retaliating when it has the power to do so. Okay, so someone in your sphere of influence says something to you that cuts you. A perfect comeback comes to mind. And you don't want to waste it. And you choose to stuff it. Okay, when you have the power to respond to an unkind act and you're completely justified and you have the right words to say back that would really make a clear statement. So when the Spirit of God is saying, no, no, not that, this. Okay, patience is a measured response to a provocation that comes from without. Let me give you these three observations of what this might look like in our life. In one sense, patience is going to wait for the whole picture before passing judgment. Wait for the whole picture. Now, in our impatience, what do we want to do? We see a circumstance, we want to jump in and resolve it. When your children are younger, it is so easy to do that. Right? And then one of the other children comes in and says, Hey, Dad, by the way, when this and this and this was happening, you went and corrected that, you didn't know about this. And you're like, oh, my word. Okay, why? Because in my impatience, I, I don't want to deal with the situation. I don't want to be what's best for everybody involved. I just want to get the annoyance out of my life. Love is patient. It waits for the whole picture before it passes judgment. When it is lacking, okay, life becomes a war zone that is full of casualties. Why? Because I'm oft, always just firing off responses to whatever circumstances are rising on the screen of my life. Love is patient. Waits for the whole picture. Proverbs 14, 29 says it this way. He who is slow to anger is brilliant. That's my translation. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. You find yourself in a situation where you want to respond to a provocation. You have the power to do so and you choose not to. God is saying that was very wise. That is very wise. A fool utters his whole heart, his whole mind. It's always on the plate. It's always out there in front. A loving person who is committed to the benefit and blessing of others is slow to anger and has great understanding. But he who is quick-tempered exalts foolishness and brings devastation and casualties into his or her life. Okay? Our words can have an incredibly destructive effect. A patient person also does this, and I think this is so critical in our lives. They make allowance for the imperfections of others. They're not stunned 
when their mate who they pledge their life to sins. They are not completely caught off guard that, wait, the person I married is not perfect. My children are not perfect. They expect that humanity has built in flaws because of our sin and our rebellion. And they live, understand, they have realistic expectations and make allowance for the imperfections of others. They understand that there is no perfect mate. There is no perfect child. There is no perfect workplace. There is no perfect employer. They just, they get that. To the level that it modifies their response to provocation and wrong when it comes. Proverbs 12, 18 says this, reckless words pierce like a sword. Meaning words that, that are an instinctive fleshly response to circumstances without taking into account I shouldn't expect perfection from my mate I'm not justified in flying off the handle towards my mate or towards my children towards my co-worker my neighbor or whoever it is when they make a mistake I shouldn't be stunned and surprised that we wrestle with indwelling sin our hasty verbal reactions to the imperfections of others have long-term consequences they're the words that fly out and you think ah If I could get that back, I would take it back. See, love causes us to be patient because before the words go forth, it's thinking, what is best for everyone involved in this circumstance? It's concerned about the growth and benefit of those around it. Proverbs 19, 11, a man's wisdom gives patience. It is a man's glory to overlook an offense. Wow. You know, we live in a world... And the Greek world was much like this, that prizes or that values people, nobody ever steps on them. Well, they won't get away with that with them. Okay, and a lot of, a lot of circumstances, athletic events, are kind of bound up in that. Oh, he said that about him? Oh, I can't wait to watch that game and see what he does back. And we value the response. That is really ungodly. A wise person knows Hey, the person I'm married to, the children I'm raising by the grace of God are imperfect just like I am. It is a man's glory to overlook an offense when they have the power to respond and to bring a strong consequence. I think of this with Jesus, with his disciples. Mark chapter 10 and verse 33. Just prior to it, he says to the disciples, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. There, the Son of Man will be handed over. He will be brutally beaten. He will be crucified. He will be put in a grave. On the third day, he will rise again. Immediately following that set of circumstances, you find this discussion among the disciples of Jesus about who is really greatest. And then you see the corrective love of Christ that patiently confronts and yet draws the disciples back into a proper relationship with himself. He doesn't fly off the handle at them and say, you know what, you guys are a mess. I'm going to go find someone else. He takes into account the imperfections of his disciples and makes allowance and provision for our failures. This is the grace of God. Are you patient? Do you make allowance for the imperfections of others? Think to yourself, what was my reaction the last time that I lost, someone lost my keys? What was my reaction the last time someone backed into my car? Did I automatically think, that idiot, why weren't they paying attention? Or did I think, I wonder what might be going on in their life that has them so distracted that they would do something to my car like that? Do we patiently think it through? Are we the person that jumps out of the car and rants and raves, not even knowing 
the phone call that that person just got from a friend about something devastating in their life that led to this event. You see, we're so quick to respond. Love is patient. It, it becomes measured in how it uh, responds to provocation and, and wrongs that come. Do you make allowance in your life for the sin of others? Are you patient in that regard? And then lastly this. Patience minimizes strife and builds unity in our lives. How does it do that? It allows people in your sphere of influence to fail without you casting them aside and treating them as if they're worthless and useless. It encourages peace in our lives and in our homes. May God help us to become men and women, young people who are patient in our relationships with others. And in that patience, we're expressing this restrained, self-effacing, self-sacrificing love of Christ to the world around us. Ask yourself this question this morning. Can you put your name in this blank? Tim is patient. He's patient. Can we say that about ourselves today? Are your expectations of your mate, of your parents, of your teens realistic? Do they lead to a patient response when they fail? Second thought I want to look at this morning is the next word that comes up. Love is kind. If patience is a restrained response to others, kindness is an active response. It's kind of the flip side of a coin here, isn't it? Patience is don't do that. Okay? Put up with, tolerate, love, seek to encourage, and correct. Kindness is, in spite of the shortcomings of this person in my sphere of influence and relationships, I am going to be loving towards them. The idea of kindness here is to be gentle. It is an active goodwill that comes even when wrong is present. It desires and works for the good of others. Isn't that powerful? It desires and works for the good of others in a context where humanity is fallen. It is a persistence, a perseverance in acts of kindness. Because they are the best means by which we can express the love of God to those around us. If patience, show, if patience is how love reacts in order to minimize a negative consequence, then kindness is how love acts to maximize a positive outcome or circumstance. One writer says it this way, patience avoids a problem, kindness creates a blessing. Now if I'm going to be kind, what has to happen? Okay, I'll just give you these brief descriptions. I'm going to need to be willing to be gentle in my response to my mate, to my kids, to my parents. I'm going to need to learn to be gentle, not unnecessarily harsh. I'm going to need to do what Ephesians 4 says when it says we should speak the truth in a loving way. Speak truth in a way that builds up, that edifies others. It doesn't tear them down but it makes a contribution to their life. It makes them better because you're in their sphere of influence. It's a positive response, a willingness to be gentle. It is also this, a willingness to be flexible or agreeable instead of what we tend to be in our flesh, which is what? Obstinate, stummered, you know, kind of poured in concrete, reluctant. This word indicates that a willingness to cooperate, to find out, through interaction, what's going to be best. It doesn't come in and insist on its 
way. See, kindness is seeking to know what's going to be best for everyone that's involved in this set of circumstances. It seeks a resolution that would be for the benefit and encouragement of everyone. Silly things around the house. Isn't it amazing how they can blow up and become huge things? Little indications of self-centeredness that ultimately just become destructive. In our house, and, and you know this if you're married, in when you get married, you, you merge together two very different worlds because our backgrounds tend to be very different. Um, my wife's mom has piles of stuff around the house, my mother-in-law, okay? That's how she organizes her life, okay? Now, the, in, in the context I was raised in, guess what? You never left anything on the counters, okay? Now, my wife has a tendency, not an over, if you've been in my house, you know it's clean and pretty well organized. And that's all due to her, not me. Okay? But she has one spot where she has some stuff that she likes to sit there. I'm foolish enough to think that shouldn't sit there. And it took me a while just to get the point where I said, you know what? Let, if she wants that there, that's fine. That's not hurting anybody. It's different than I would do it. But a kindness is to say this, you know what? I'm gonna, that's fine. That's not a big deal. It's not a problem. See, if I lack kindness, what am I going to do? I'm going to be abrasive. I'm going to sit, insist on having it the way that I want it to be. Okay, in our selfishness, we kill kindness. And we fail to be a blessing to others. And I'm sure every married couple, every child in relationship to their parents, you could come up with ways in which this manifests itself in your life. God wants us to be kind. He wants us to cultivate a gentleness that, that tolerates and that loves and that puts up with each other. Even down to the smallest areas of our life. An appreciation of different perspectives. Oh, okay, I would have done it this way, but I see why you did it that way. But see, in our pride, we don't want to go there. We think there's only one way that things should be done. And the other way has to be wrong because it's not the way that we came up with. Kindness is also going to do this. It's going to have a willingness to take initiative. Isn't this hard? Initiative. See something in the house that needs to be done, and in your mind you can think, somebody will do it. There's five people that live in this house. Why should I have to do it? One writer said it this way. He said, love does not need to be prompted to leave the couch. Okay? After dinner, it does, you don't have to ask a kind person to help with the dishes after dinner. But a self-centered person, you have to remind on a regular basis. And I can tell you this, I've caught myself when my mind's preoccupied and busy with the things that are going on in my life, get up from dinner and just and walk away. And then, you know, get halfway up the stairs or halfway down into the basement and think, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you thinking in terms of kindness? How can I help this person? What can I do to encourage this brother or sister in Christ? The little thoughts that God brings in, into your mind by His Spirit, the promptings that He gives you to do things that are kind and loving as an expression of His love. Take advantage of those opportunities. And, and here's what you'll find. You will build unity into your, into your marriage and you will lessen the days where there are casualties spread all over the place. Because kindness is, kindness is powerful. 
It's a, it's, it's a word that when you hear, okay, that person's kind. We, we, we tend to have this, okay, that's somewhat insignificant. Okay, we like people that are powerful, that are movers and shakers. They're the ones we respect. That's the stuff we talk about. Very seldom do we celebrate the little kindnesses. Mom and Dad, when your kids do something that is kind, do you stop them? It's one thing I picked up from the seminar. We, we always, we're good on the criticism, but are we good on kindness? When our children do something kind, do we go over and encourage them? And say, you know what, that was, that was amazing. You did that. That was so kind of you. Why? Because that kindness is an expression of what Christ was like. When his disciples reacted in the most foolish ways, he responded with kindness, drawing them back, loving them back, providing for them. He's got a willingness to take the initiative. At church, think of it this way. A kind person greets first and smiles first. A self-centered person leaves saying, nobody said hi to me. Ever had that happen to you? You know, a kind person says, you know what? When I'm here, I'm going, to speak, I'm going to seek to be the presence of Jesus this morning. And I'm going, to, I'm going to try to beat them to the greeting. Not for pride, okay? It doesn't wait for someone to come to them. That's self-centered. Love is expressed in kindness. It says, you know what? I'm going to go do this just because it's a way that I can express my love for Jesus Christ. It'll be a help and encouragement. It'll make a positive contribution to the other person's life. Do you have a determination to do thoughtful things, to show thoughtful love? I was, I was captured a little bit by Titus 3. Let me just read this text for you this morning. Titus 3 and verse 4, because it, it amazes me how the gospel begins to reveal itself in these settings. Titus 3 and verse 4, which is a discussion of the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, okay, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, what happened? When he wanted to manifest his kindness to us, what did he do? He saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Ghost, who he poured out generously upon us in and through Christ Jesus our Lord, so that having been justified by grace, we become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You know what that's the result of? Just the sheer goodness and kindness of God. We, he just pours out blessings and benefits. And then he says to you, hey, by the way, could, could you just be encouraging to your wife today? Oh, why? Well, because, look, remember the kindness I showed you. I sent my son out of kindness. It's a strong word. It's an elevated word. It's not a weak word. It's a strong expression consistently of caring acts for the benefit of others, even when there is provocation and inconsistency. Make a choice, my friends, to be kind. And then the last thought I want to look at real quickly is this. Love does not envy. The word simply means it's not jealous. It doesn't envy. It's not jealous. The church in Corinth was a divided church, and we've looked at that on a number of occasions so strongly divided that the Apostle Paul at one point, I think it's in chapter 3, he says, when you go through these battles, 
who's of Paul, who's of Paulus, who came to Christ through which stronger apostle, and, and who has the greater gifts, and all these sorts of discussions that are going on. At one point, Paul, out of frustration, I sense, says this. He says, aren't you acting like mere men? Which is a fascinating statement. Aren't you acting like people who have never been influenced positively by the Spirit of God? If this kind of jealousy and envy about who does what characterizes the church, who gets prominence, who, who gets recognition, if those kinds of things are driving what's happening, here's Paul says, you're acting like people that don't even know God. And so with that thought in mind, think of these definitions then of, of envy because it, it's, it's a tough issue that, that, that many of us deal with in, in one way or another. It's hard to fight. Okay, it's often present in ways that we don't even realize. It's at a subliminal level where we feel dissatisfied and a little bit jealous about the other things that people have. One writer said the problem is present because there's two kinds of people in the world. There are millionaires and people who want to be millionaires. What is he doing? He's saying just, that's just the way we're wired in, in our human nature. Tending to be dissatisfied with the material provision of God. The definition of jealousy can move in one of two ways, however, and the second way is devastatingly strong and sometimes present in our lives. At the basic level, jealousy means this, envy. It means wanting what other people have. And one writer in the commentary said this, that's just simply hard to avoid. When someone pulls up in a car that's nicer than mine, that has less mileage on it than mine, guess what I'm thinking? I'm so happy for them. Okay, no, there are times that I think, I, I, when I was up at camp yesterday, I got a call from uh, my daughter. Uh, her car had just seized at the light of Breastcastle Road in Route 57. And my first response was, why are you calling me? I'm three hours away, <laughs> okay? But I knew that she, she wanted me to be aware of the situation. She had a friend with her. But, you know, I don't think, I wish I had cars with less mileage on them, okay? Riding in someone else's newer car on the way to the retreat and back thinking, you know, I wish I had a car that, that had that many miles on it. Okay, just, we, we have this tendency to want things to be better than they are. It's just, it's there and you've got to keep, no, no. What does Paul say to Timothy? He says, Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. So what do you have to do? In the power of the Spirit, you have to fight that, that envy that it, it's, what, it's part of my flesh that wants it to be better, that thinks I deserve better. And we have to fight it. Because it is alive and well in many of our hearts. So one part of envy is wanting what others have. But here, here's the part that's sad. Envy can also be the displeasure that one feels towards another's good fortune. Okay, the displeasure that one feels towards the good fortune or blessing of another. That's a little more insidious, isn't it? Because what is it saying? Not, I wish I had what they have too. It's saying, I wish they didn't have what they have. Because if they didn't, then I wouldn't feel the way I feel. See how it, rever it becomes very self-centered. It becomes focused on my desire for pleasure. Rather than see the blessing of God poured out in others. Which is fascinating when I go back into chapter 12 and verse 26, right? If one part suffers, every part in the church suffers with it. If another part is honored, every part rejoices. Do you see? That second part, we, we have to be told to do that. 
I need to be reminded. We need to say to our kids, when somebody else experiences a blessing, receives a gift, and your child's thinking, boy, I wish I had that. It said, hey, why don't you just be happy for that? You have to encourage that, that mindset, okay? See, love doesn't envy. It's not jealous. The definition I give you, the danger of jealousy, I think, clearly emerges in a stunning passage in James chapter 3. Just read this passage for you real quickly. James chapter 3, and just, just listen to this. James 3, verses 14 through 16. It says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it. About it. Isn't that amazing? If you find bitterness and envy in your heart, don't boast about that. Or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. You know what Satan wants you to be? He wants you to be dissatisfied with the provision of God. And the way that he prompts that is to cause you by his deceitful tactics, to want what other people have because you think if you have what they have, then you'll be happy and you can't be happy without it. Verse 16 then, the warning. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Okay, that should be a warning sign to me. If I tolerate envy towards my brothers and sisters in Christ, if I tolerate jealousy towards my brothers and sisters in Christ, and don't cultivate contentment with God's provision, number one, I'm not loving. Number two, here's what I've done. I've opened up the door in my life for almost any sin to enter in. I have made myself incredibly vulnerable because I start living my life wanting things. And if, if I live my life wanting things, thinking they will make me happy, I will sacrifice any moral principle to get to that end. And so the warning that comes out of this text, I think, is exceedingly and powerfully strong. It's a challenge to be genuinely happy for people who have it better than you do. It's a challenge to be happy for people who have gifts that are more pronounced than yours. Okay? I watch people play guitar. Guess what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, I wish I could play. I do, and I really mean this. I wish I could. When I watch a drummer drum, I, w- I so wish I could do that. Here's my honest belief. I don't think God could trust me with those gifts. I really don't. I mean, I joke about that, but I really don't believe that God could have trusted me with those gifts. So you know what he asked me to do? 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of preaching. Okay. That's the definition God gives of our job. And you know what God says? And I'm going to use that foolishness to change hearts. You know what God wants us to do? He wants to look at the person that plays piano so beautifully. It just flows. He wants to say, you know what? Thank you, God, for giving them that gift. For the person that's blessed with a raise of promotion at work, to say, God, thank you. Thank you for doing that for them. Just encourage this form of gratitude and kindness and patience in your life so that the world around us that needs to see the love of Christ will begin to see it. See, I don't know which of these three you struggle with the most, okay? And notice what I'm saying. I believe all of us struggle with all three of these, but I don't know which one you struggle with most. And if you said to me, Tim, oh, how do I overcome these things? Well, you know, at one level, I could, well, you need to choose to overcome it. But that choice in your flesh is ineffective. You see, these things that are listed here, 
are largely parallel to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, where the fruit of the Spirit are listed. You see, they're not naturally occurring. They're not arising out of my flesh, except in contexts where they make me look good. Then I find it incredibly easy to be kind if other people are going to know about it. Because that's the way my flesh is. If I'm going to love like God wants me to love, I need the Spirit of God to do a powerful work in my heart. That work starts with conversion, and it's why in 1 John chapter 4, and verse 7, let's just listen to this statement. Get the right passage here. 1 John 4 and verse 7. Dear brothers, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Do you see? You can leave here and say, okay, by will, I'm going to choose. You know, Kevin Wade could say this going on. He's going to say, today when I leave here, I'm going to love Michelle more. And I'm going to say to Kevin, Kevin, if you don't depend on the Spirit of God to do that in your heart, it's not going to happen. And you'll do okay for a little while, but to persevere in it, it needs to be the work of the Spirit of God. It's what's going to happen in the heart of an individual believer that says, God, I'm going to seek you on a daily basis for the love of Christ. I want you to cause me to be a kind man. I want you to cause me to be a patient young person with my parents. It's only going to happen as you yield yourself to God and say, God, I can't. What you're asking for in this text, I can't do. True love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who practices biblical love, self-sacrifice, self-effacing choices to benefit others. They're loving because they... They know what love is. They've experienced And the Spirit of God is brooding that from within their heart. This is how we know what love is. And when you love like that, here's what you'll find. It will kill competition. I think we could say this morning, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus never envied. And may God help us to be like this portrait of love that we read about here. Because I live in a context of a world that's watching to see if my faith is real. To see if what the chapel of Warren Valley says they're about is real, genuine. You say, Pastor Tim, how do you know they're looking? John 13, 34, and 35. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you're happy for the blessings of others. If you're patient when you're wrong, then don't retaliate when you could have. If you're kind. When they watch those kinds of things happening, you know what? They look and say, you know what? There is something different about those people. They're not people that just say they're Christians. They act like Christ. And if you don't know Christ this morning, can I just encourage you to realize that Jesus' patience with you is being expressed right now? Because you know what Romans 3 says? Romans 3 says that all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. It says that the wages of my rebellion, my sin, my choosing my own way, is the what I deserve is death, separation from God. Guess what? You haven't experienced that yet. You're still alive. You know why? The patience and kindness of God. He's not giving you right now as you breathe what you deserve. He's giving you an opportunity. Because he is patient and kind.
and good. And if you've never trusted him, I would just encourage you where you sit, just to cry out to him and say, okay, God, got my attention. I can't love like that because I'm a sinner. I'm too self-centered. I need you to change my heart to cause him to be a loving person. Thank you for being patient with me to this point in my life so that today I could cry out to you and receive your love and have my life changed forever. Isn't that awesome? If you're alive today and you don't know Christ, it's because of the patience of God. If you're here as a Christian and God is still putting up with you, it's because of the kindness and patience of God. Because he loves you and he wants to use your life for his glory. Father, would you this morning convince us of the weakness of our 